As we all know, not all children get the chance to grow up. The death of someone young has to be one of the most tragic things that can happen, and it brings up all of these questions. Is that really the end? Is all that potential just gone? And if the soul does survive, where are they now? Is someone taking care of them? Are they happy? Are they still children? Why do some of us stay on this earth while others don't? While we certainly won't be able to explain away the deep pain of losing someone too soon, we are going to look into these questions and the answers people say they've found tonight. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. It's a heavy topic tonight, but hopefully one that can bring some comfort uh, to people who are looking for it. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host. And if you want to be part of this conversation, get your questions and comments in. We'll answer them at the end of the show. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at what people have reported about what happens to kids who die and the continuation of their life in the next world. So we'll be gathering from a few sources and trying to put together a puzzle of this answer to what I feel like is one of the most potent questions of life. So we're going to begin with the first question I think everybody would ask, are they okay? And that would be the first worry in some form, are they all right? Whether that, you know, did, did their consciousness survive? You know, some people, are they, were they this person that existed and, and was, even at a young age, this unique thing that, that, that nobody else is and, and can't be recreated? Is that gone? You know, but it's some people who, even people who do think there's a survival of consciousness, what kind of survival of consciousness is it? Are they safe? Are they happy? Is their life as good? And for some people, there are even religious fears around it. For example, there is a book called Hello from Heaven, which has a lot of stories of after-death communications that regular people had. They recorded them down, or, or the authors did. And this, we're going to play a little clip of a story being read from there from a woman named Laura. And she had lost a, a baby at, at six weeks. And she was worried because this baby wasn't baptized. And because of her religious background, she had these extra fears. So this is an experience about her dealing with that. Part of my despair was that Anthony had not been baptized. Someone had planted a seed in my mind that all babies who aren't baptized would burn in hell forever. I was agonizing over this, and it was awful. I was frantic because the guilt was more than I could bear. When I came home from the cemetery after his funeral, I went into my bedroom and turned the lights off. I sat on the bed for quite a while and emptied my mind of all thought. I went to a very tranquil place. It was like I was on a raft on still water, and the water became like a mirror, and I started feeling peace. Then beautiful rays of light came down towards me, and a stairway became visible. Suddenly, Christ appeared in an awesome form and size. He was solid and real. He was magnificent. Christ started descending the stairs and came all the way to the bottom. 
He extended his arm and had Anthony cradled in it. Anthony was whole again. He was perfect. He was my baby. The message I got was Anthony's all right. He is home and he is safe. Now I knew my baby was with Christ. Then they faded away and disappeared. Because that was her experience. And I don't, I don't, do you have kids? Have you seen that little baby? Just a, a picture of it. It's just like, oh, these are like, this is the heartstrings of the heartstrings here that are being tugged. So she had that and it, and it put all her fears to rest. And it also can show what, what some harmful religious ideas can do. You put this extra pain on this woman because the idea that a little baby would go to hell because it didn't have the right ritual. You know, luckily she had that wiped away there. Um, in that book, across all of the stories about kids, mostly the kids when they can talk, uh, when they're old enough, are saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. And that's, that's a universal theme there. And Swedenborg says, reports on kids, and he says, all children go to heaven. This is heaven and hell, 329. May it be known, therefore, that every child who dies, no matter where he or she was born, within the church or outside it, of devout or irreverent parents, is accepted by the Lord after death, brought up in heaven, taught according to the divine design, and filled with affections for what is good, and through them with direct knowledge of the truth, and then being continually perfected in intelligence and wisdom, all such individuals are led into heaven and become angels. Anyone who thinks rationally can realize that no one is born for hell. Everyone is born for heaven. We ourselves are to blame if we arrive in hell. But children are not yet liable for any blame. And the world that Swedenborg was writing in initially, I mean, there was a widespread belief that unless you had the right kind of baptism, that was it. You would go to hell. So that was very real. And as we saw with this story from Hello from Heaven, still weighs on some people. Uh, so, but Swedenborg says children are universally accepted into care and into heaven. And he's not the only one who's saying that. Our next guest is the founder of Out of Body Travel. Uh, you go to this website here. She's got a lot of cool stuff. She actually found the show, wrote us a, a message, and we got hooked up with an interview, which is great. Uh, she uh, has had a lot of out-of-body experiences, has seen a lot of the other side for herself, and found uh, you know a harmony between what she was seeing, what Swedenborg was seeing, and we were lucky enough to get to talk to her about some things she's seen involving children. And here she describes also the kind of care that the kids receive first thing on the other side. I've seen so much regarding the experiences of children in heaven, um, but I can put it into a, uh, a little bit of a notated version, although there are many different variations that do occur with every child because every child has a different destiny, a different purpose, God's will may be different for their life and their afterlife. Um, but it generally starts with children. God uh, is very quick to send in first of all it's the first person they're going to see is their guardian angel and one of the things that happens when we die is that our vibrational uh our vibrational shift focuses from the physical to the spiritual it shifts and so when we're dying we shift from that physical view to that spiritual view and it takes us to a higher vibrational level where we are immediately then aware of some spiritual presences and that's where the, um, so the children will see their guardian angel first. And oftentimes it will bring in several other angels because they want this child to feel all, all encompassing love and peace and protection because this is a very different type of death than for an adult, so to speak. 
So after that, they are going to uh, oftentimes see the tunnel that a lot of near-death experiencers will talk about, but they're also going to meet with deceased relatives. And ironically, sometimes um, one of those guardian angels that may appear at the very beginning may be one of their deceased relatives, could be grandparents, could be even uh, great-grandparents or relatives they don't even maybe even know because the ancestors really do keep watching for several generations. So they may meet some people in the family line that they didn't even realize existed. And so that's always interesting when you hear, when you see and hear those stories and, and, and a child comes back with uh, some kind of uh, awareness of someone that they've never been told about. Uh, but they're going to see the guardian angels. They're going to see the uh, family members who are going to also, you know, embrace them in love. It's just, it's cool to think about, you know, something as sad as a, a child being taken out of this situation of this life, but then being immediately wrapped up in care and with people they know or have a connection to. It's just, it, it's a great, great thought. And Swedenborg seemed to especially be touched by the accounts of children, you know, or, or his accounts of children, when he would see them and see the kind of um, setup that they have going in. He wrote in Heaven and Hell 332 <clears throat> a little bit about how children are taken care of. As soon as children are reawakened, which happens immediately after their death, they are taken to heaven and given to female angels who had loved children tenderly during their physical lives and had loved God as well. Since in this world they had loved all children with a kind of maternal tenderness, they accept these new ones as their own, and the children love them as their mothers, as though they were this were inborn in them. Each such angel has as many children as her spiritual maternal nature wants. This heaven can be seen in the forward part of the forehead, directly on the line or radius along which angels look at the Lord. The reason for this location is that children are under the direct care of the Lord. Into them flows the heaven of innocence, which is the third heaven. So you have a, a very sweet sentiment and this very weird thing about a forehead. Welcome to Swedenborg. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. So put that on the back burner. But first, uh, I want to say that you, I think about with that passage, uh, you know, people here who want to have kids really want it, but it can't happen for whatever reason, is that need met for those people on the other side too? They get to be the caregivers to these little, to these little, um, you know, little people who are coming there and need someone to care for them. So that could be a very good setup for, for both of them, very sad for us here, but nice to think of, of people happy there. Swedenborg says it's not just individual angels that, that care for babies, there are whole communities set up uh, for this kind of care. Heaven and Hell 391 there are some communities whose tasks are to take care of babies. There are other communities whose tasks are to teach and lead children while they are growing up. And further, in Secrets of Heaven, by the way, click these books to download free copies if you want, taking care of children is the province of certain angelic communities, and of which there are many, and particularly of women and girls who would love children with special tenderness during their bodily lives. And now, okay, now we'll get to this this weird forehead body part kind of stuff. None of it's going to make sense unless you've seen this episode of ours. The Shape of Heaven, it was one of our first of the version 3.0 of the show. The point is, it describes the, the grand human being or the shape of heaven, the, the schematic uh, functional shape that relates, that heaven functions together like a human body. The point is, you're going to hear about how different parts of the body match up with different communities in heaven, and it's fine, it's fine, it's a fine thing. Swedenborg describes little children uh, being in the province of the eyes, 
which means that they are right under the Lord's supervision. And he also describes them being in the province of the heart, which obviously is about love and under the deepest care there. So when they are pulled in, they're taken right to where they need to be. So there's a question. So if this is all true, which it seems a lot of different sources seem to be saying this is what happens, you have this initial, okay, they're all right. They're they're cared for. They go somewhere nice. But then after that, are they? Did they miss out? Did it, did it happen that they they didn't get to participate in childhood? That's a lot of the grief when when a child goes is that there's so many things they'll never get to do. So do they get to do that stuff on the other side? We're gonna take a look in part two. Yes, Swedenborg says that they're still children when they're on the other side. So it's not like you go there and immediately become this angelic being and you never get to have the experience of growing a little older and being excited about how old you are and playing and learning. This is a this is part of the divine design. Everybody goes through it, regardless of whether you do it here or there. Heaven and Hell 330, uh, he says, Children who die are still children in the other life. They have the same kind of childlike mind, the same innocence in their ignorance, the same total delicateness. They are only in the rudiments of becoming angels, for children are not angels in being, but only angels in becoming. Actually, everyone who leaves this world stays in the same state of life. A baby is in the state of a baby, a child in the state of a child, an adolescent or adult or senior in the state of an adolescent, an adult or a senior. However, this state eventually changes. Uh, and Swedenborg says, for those of us who die old, we grow back to the prime of youth, and for those who die young, they begin to grow up to that same area. So we all meet in the middle at the happiest uh, happiest phase to be in. So he also says that it's not just about growth, but also they get to do things like play and learn, just like children here on earth do, but with the advantages of being in this spiritual world. This is from his Secrets of Heaven 2296, where he describes a little more the, the playing and the learning and how it differs from what we have here. Age, as was also shown to me. I had the opportunity to see children in very beautiful clothes, wreathed about the chest and also round their tender arms with flower garlands, radiant with the most charming heavenly colors. Once I also had the privilege of seeing some children together with the young women who taught them. They were in a magnificent park, made up not so much of trees as of a laurel-like plant with branches trained crosswise, forming arcades. The park was very elaborate, with pathways opening into the interior. The children themselves were dressed as before, and when they walked in, a collection of flowers over the entrance burst into ecstatic light. This gives some idea of the kinds of things that delight them. It also shows that pleasures and joys introduce them to the good impulses that innocence and love for others prompt, impulses that the Lord is constantly instilling in those joys and pleasures. It's like a finely tuned, ideal environment to both play, but also to learn, to learn through everything that you do and be introduced into these good things through happy things. It's like if if we here on earth got to refine and improve school for a couple more hundred thousand years, finally get it to a place where 
everybody loves it and it's teaching you in just the right way. And even the atmosphere, even the land around everything seems to be alive and play for these kids. We actually made a video a while ago called The Air in Heaven where we talk about these spiritual atmospheres that Swedenborg describes, and there's a clip in there where you hear a little bit about the sphere that little children are in, so we're going to play that for you here. Their atmosphere is composed of multicolored flowers, so small they can't be seen. Countless variations on this type of atmosphere fill the heaven where small children live. In fact, one even sees atmospheres composed of what seem to be children at play, again, at a size that is too small to see, but can be perceived, although only by the deepest power of thought. This gives young children the idea that everything around them is alive and is part of God's stream of life, a thought that gives them a feeling of happiness in their inmost being. It's such a strange, when we were at first trying to animate that, we didn't even really know how to do it. It's, he says, it appears that the atmosphere is composed of children at play on a minute scale. Whatever that is, it probably makes sense if you experience it, but the effect is, makes children see that God's life is in everything and makes them happy. So it's, I, I give it my seal of approval. He, and let's, let's have a little more context for that quote. This comes from Secrets of Heaven 2297, uh, where he's describing more the development process of children. In addition, as the children develop, they are also surrounded with auras that match their state of development. In the other world, auras exist in countless variety and inexpressible beauty, as experience has taught me. In particular, youngsters see auras composed of what seem to be children at play, at a size that is too small to see, but that can be perceived, although only by the deepest power of thought. This gives them the heavenly idea that everything around them is alive and is part of the Lord's stream of life, a thought that gladdens them to the core. So that's what we were reading. By a method of communication that is common in the next life... I was shown what goes through children's minds when they look at various objects, because he describes thought-sharing there, so you can actually see this is what it's like to be a child. It was as if each and every one of the objects was alive, so that the individual concepts that went into their thinking had life. I perceive that children on earth were almost, have almost the same kind of notions when they are at play, because unlike adults, they do not yet have the ability to ponder what an inanimate object is, <laughs> so they, don't, they can't tell the difference between a toy and a person. And you know, He's describing that our minds are in the spiritual world, that we have a spiritual component to us, and children are more cued into that, that they're actually benefiting too from these living atmospheres that, that children in heaven have. That's why, as a kid, if you can remember it, toys, they seem like they're alive. You can really be into a game because it seems real. So the same principle, even magnified, is, is going on in, uh, in the afterlife. And even, even God is playful. Like, everything is playful there. We're going to go back to Marilyn Hughes, where she actually describes Jesus Christ and his playful side when he gets around little children. But um, they're going to go into, they're going to go more directly to the light. The life review process is definitely either not present or present only in a certain very limited way, um, unless the child is a lot older, like late teens or um, something like that, where they may have some things that they need to actually see and review. But for the most part, children don't go through a life review. They're going to go through the light and they're going to go through the, through that light into this beautiful 
it's an oasis type place. It's, it's a, a very familiar to a lot of the paintings you've probably seen where, uh, you know, you have this beautiful oasis, the running river, the greens, the flowers, everything's wonderful, the gazebos, and Christ is there. Um, I've seen Christ playing in the water with the kids, doing water fights. He's very playful with the children. He, um, uh, he is such a profoundly powerful being when you meet him as an adult. But one of the things that I think people miss about Christ is that place, playfulness, especially with the children. He does everything he can to make them feel very comfortable. So it's another experience of seeing Jesus Christ playing with kids. I mean, you had that earlier, the, the story we opened with, where he was holding that child. So like that, you know, as if you check out our episodes on Jesus, uh, as Swedenborg described it, that, that is the, the visible manifestation of God. So this is God coming in to, um, to hang out with kids. And, and you think about it, that she said he's usually awe-filled. You know, as an adult, you need to have that sense of reverence, but a kid needs to feel safe and happy. So God is just, oh, let's play, let's play, that's fun. So they're there, kids are there, they're okay, they get to experience the same kind of things in childhood, but do they stay children and how do they progress? And do they have, do they change? You know, kids, they move so quickly. They're little, then they're big, then they're bigger. It just goes really fast. Is that happening in the other life and how does that happen? So we're going to look in our next section at learning and growing. have been around a little baby, like a new baby, when they're moving into their first year or even the first couple of months, one of the big challenges in life is trying to get your body to do what it wants to do. I mean, that, what this little guy was able to do, that's tough. That takes a lot of development uh, and muscle building and work, tummy time, that kind of stuff, just to get, and it's and it's not like they've mastered it. You can see, they, they'll walk a little bit, they'll fall down. So a lot of it is about working with this body. And Swedenborg says that actually in the spiritual world, you have a smoother ride through that whole thing. He says, heaven and hell, 331. The condition of children in the other life is vastly better than that of children in our world because they are not clothed with an earthly body. Instead, they have an angelic one. An earthly body is inherently heavy. It does not receive its primary sensations and primary impulses from the inner or spiritual world, but from the outer or natural one. So children in this world learn by practice to walk, to do things, and to talk. Even their senses, such as sight and hearing, are developed by use. It is different for children in the other life. Because they are spirits, their actions are impelled directly by their inner natures. They walk without practice and even talk, though at first this is just a matter of general affections and yet undifferentiated into mental concepts. However, they are very soon introduced into these latter as well, and since their outer natures are in such concord with their inner natures. It's like, uh, it's like 
Swedenborg's description and others' description of us going from the physical world into the spiritual world. That there suddenly people talk about in near-death experiences, I suddenly knew all these things, I could do all these things I couldn't do before. Swedenborg says that we all gain a much better grasp of language, we, we know the angelic language, which is essentially just articulated mental concepts that, that on the level that we all share them. It's just a very smooth, your spirit, you're in the spirit, the spirit just flows out. So for kids, it's like that. It's not like I got to learn how to use this machine. There's a much more direct connection between the heart and mind and what they can do. So it's supposedly a very uh, pleasant uh, growth experience for them. He goes on farther, spiritual experiences 5668. Those infants who have been brought up in heaven do not know otherwise than that they were born in in the other life. They do not know what time is, what space is, and such terrestrial matters. Within a month, they speak the angelic language, an estimate on a month. Now, don't take that to mean that if a baby dies really young, they won't remember their parents or won't remember anything about... We're going to get to that. There's stories about that. They do. There is a connection that's not broken there. What he's saying there is they get completely adapted to the culture uh, of the afterlife. They don't think about things in space and time the way we do. It's the same process that we go through. Eventually, all, all spirits get to be like that, where you think in terms of states and affections rather than distance and time. But he's just saying very quickly, it's like little kids learning a language, you know, how much quicker they can learn that than adults. The, the, the mind of children pick up what it is to be in the other life so quickly. So the message is they're not out of place or confused like we would be if we moved to another country. They're, they're happy there. So we'll get to that story about, about young children remembering later. But for now, let's dive further into this whole thing. Uh, Secrets of Heaven 2290, Swedenborg describes it further. This is it being read and with some, with some imagery to suggest what's going on. People who know nothing about conditions in the life after death might imagine that the instant children enter the other world, they gain angelic understanding and wisdom. Much experience has taught me, though, that the case is very different. Babies who pass away not long after birth have almost exactly the same kind of mind as babies on earth. Their knowledge is no greater. All they have is an ability to learn, develop understanding, and become wise in that order, which they do more readily because they do not have a body but are spirits. I have not only heard but seen that this is what they are like when they first reach heaven. Several times by the Lord's divine mercy, troops of children were sent to me, and I had the privilege of reading them the Lord's Prayer. At these times, I have been given the opportunity to perceive how the angels who accompanied them would introduce an idea of the prayer's message into the children's tender, rudimentary thoughts. The more the little ones' minds could take in, the fuller an idea the angels would give them. Afterward, I saw how the children were given the ability to think similar sorts of thoughts for themselves. One of my favorite things about Swedenborg's accounts of things is the insight into the way the mind works, and this picture of such a more intimate mental connection in that life, that you can gently put, if you're a teacher, you can gently put an idea in, almost like on a metaphysical level, rather than just 
hear some sounds, you take those in, and you, there's there's much much tighter connection there, which I think there's all kinds of cool potential, and even as adults to understand what our own thoughts and feelings are and the thoughts and feelings of others. So I think that that's cool. So you see here children learning and growing, and they do. You see children of different ages and sizes. Swedenborg says they do advance, uh, you know, what not physically, but spiritually, physically. So how do they do that? Um, here... We grow because we eat food, right? We have to keep taking in food, and that's what we use to build our body. And Swedenborg says that in the afterlife, and this is true for adults as well as children, instead of food, it's knowledge. The Spirit feeds on knowledge, and so children eat this same kind of thing. Heaven and Health 340, he describes it, Many people think that children remain children in heaven and are like children among the angels. However, things are actually very different. Intelligence and wisdom make an angel qualities that they do not have as long as they are children. Children are with the angels, but they themselves are not angels yet. Once they are intelligent and wise, they are angels for the first time. In fact, they then no longer look like children, but like adults, because they no longer have a childlike nature, but a more grown-up, angelic nature. This goes with intelligence and wisdom. The reason children look more grown up as they are perfected in intelligence and wisdom, that is, like adolescents and young adults, is that intelligence and wisdom are the essential spiritual food. So the things that nourish their minds also nourish their bodies, which is a result of correspondence, since the form of the body is nothing but an outward form of their inner natures. It does not need to be known that children in heaven... It does need to be known that children in heaven do not grow up beyond the prime of youth, but remain at that age forever. Uh, so they never get to have the joys of, of uh, being old uh, like the rest of us do. Um, so what is happening there is correspondence. That's the essence of the spiritual world, is that the, the shapes, the objects you see are reflecting the inner reality. Here, not so much. You know, you know as we get older in our bodies, our, we still feel young, you know, you all the time, at every age bracket, people say, I don't feel as old as I am, because the Spirit is still young. There, you can see a reflection of that. Here, it's it's a machine that we're inside. You know, you, you can look scary, but be a nice person. You can look nice, but be a scary person. But there, it's all, it's all honest, and it's all accurate. So as these children's minds develop, their external form adjusts, and you see them as getting older and older. So it's not just arbitrary, it is part of a system, but different than the, like, okay, I'm eating proteins and amino acids, and that's building my body. It's doing that with, with knowledge. All right, so they actually can learn much more quickly than we can here. Swedenborg describes it in Secrets of Heaven 2291. And this is him saying the Lord's Prayer and seeing its effect. While saying the Lord's Prayer, I was also shown the undeveloped nature of the children's intellect, with which they were influencing the thoughts in my mind. Their intellectual power was so unformed that they knew hardly anything beyond the meaning of the words. Even so, their thinking in all its immaturity had a clear and open path all the way up to the Lord, or rather, all the way down from the Lord." Particularly when acting on children's thoughts, the Lord works from the profoundest inner depth. No, inner depths. Nothing has closed their minds yet the way it has in adults. No false assumptions keep them from understanding truth. No life of evil keeps them from receiving goodness and consequently growing wise. If you thought before, those pictures of Jesus Christ scooping up children, playing with him, were God being close. You see, God is actually in the thoughts. God can work in the mind to help develop children there. So God is not like, okay, you're here, go hang out, I'm, I'm going to go over here. God is every step of the learning process in there, 
bringing them uh, closer and closer to him and, and to happiness through that. So I think that that's a cool image. And so you have this learning there, and you think about uh, objects. Here, babies look at toys um, and and see them as sort of alive. But there, you actually, he says that there is something spiritual in the objects there, so there's this direct kind of learning that can take place. Who knows exactly what that's like? He also says that there are places of learning, like we have schools here, but they're, they're specific to ages and, and obviously probably get to the point really well. Uh, so there is, but there, there are places, you don't just learn, it's not all osmosis, you do go places, you learn, you have experiences, you have classes, as we'll get to uh, coming up here. And so this is a little more about the kind of learning that children can do uh, that, that Marilyn saw in her experiences. So again, this is Marilyn Hughes. They're going to need specific things as they are growing up and, you know, according to God's will for them. So they will have a specific set of parents. They'll have extended families that are developed in that afterlife, in that realm. And as they grow older and uh, bigger, when they get to a certain stage, and of course a lot depends on what age they were when they died, but generally when they start entering into like what would be on earth a 14, 15 type age range, they're gonna start being um, directed towards um, schools that are in the um, in the uh, afterlife environment, but they're in different realms. And so these different schools will handle um, a variety of things because these children can end up doing a number of things in the afterlife. So eventually they will, you know, eventually they will all grow up just like we do. Many of them will actually get married in heaven. They will, if they get, uh, when they get married, they seek to be married in a marriage that is of the true and of the good, as Emmanuel Swedenborg would say. And so they would then be serving in a capacity as one angel with their partner. Um, and they're going to, sometimes they, you know, become parents for other children who are going to cross over early as well. But some of the schools that they might take as along with that, because that's something that probably happens with the majority of them as they grow older. But I've seen uh, different kids who are in schools for philosophy, and they're actually studying with some of the ancient philosophers. I've seen children um, who have more exalted um, positions that God wishes to put them in as they get older. And it's, almost, it's kind of like a unique place where they're almost like evangelistic in the sense that they will become teachers of some kind. And they, they learn under some of the greats, some of the great uh, you know, people in our history. You know, Emanuel Swedenborg would be among them, but many of the great preachers and of course prophets, saints, mystics, and sages who actually embark upon this with them and give them guidance, but then they have uh, regular teachers who are helping them through that as well. There's uh, children who will be taught how to assist other people as well as other children in pr primarily because they died as children, so they have that unique experience. They will help them to, uh, they will learn how to help them to cross over when they're dying. And there's a seven or eight step process of helping the child uh, leave consciousness and enter into the afterlife when they are actually physically dying. It's cool to think about children in the spirit 
assisting children uh, in this world, like imaginary friends. Maybe there really is something to it. So we're talking about kids learning. Um, don't you want to hear a specific lesson? Like, what, what are they learning about? How do they learn? Well, this is Swedenborg describing a lesson that he saw children learn, and as with everything in the spiritual world, you can sort of describe it, but you sort of can't, and you'll see him kind of struggling to get a few things across here. This is from Secrets of Heaven 2299. The principal way of teaching children is through representative scenes suited to their frame of mind. No one could ever believe how beautiful and how full of inner wisdom these scenes are. Bit by bit, they fix in the children an intelligence that takes its soul from goodness. Let me report here just a single portrayal that I was permitted to see, from which the reader may draw conclusions about the others. The children portrayed the Lord rising up from the tomb, and along with it, the uniting of his humanity with his divinity. The scene was performed with a wisdom surpassing all human wisdom, and at the same time with childlike innocence. They also presented the image of a tomb. They did not present an image of the Lord along with it, except for one that was so abstract it could hardly be seen as the Lord, except at a distance, so to speak. The reason was that the image of a tomb brings with it something macabre that they could push to the side in this way. Later, very cautiously, they allowed into the tomb a thin, vapory-looking atmosphere, by which they symbolized, again at a fitting distance, the spiritual life present in baptism. Afterward, I saw them represent the Lord going down to the prisoners and taking them up to heaven, a scene they produced with incomparable skill and reverence. Like the children that they were, when they represented the Lord among the prisoners in the underground realm, they let down tiny, soft, very delicate little threads, almost invisible, with which they helped lift the Lord as he rose. All the time they felt a holy fear, not wanting any part of their portrayal to border on what was not spiritual and heavenly. They live among other types of representation too, which lead them into a knowledge of truth and a desire for goodness, just as child's play does when it is suited to their temperament. It's very immersive. They're participating in some sort of pageant. that They're learning, but they're also part of it, and it's teaching them things, but it's like, it's it make sure that it doesn't introduce anything that wouldn't that would be disturbing to them in some way. Very interesting uh, the description that Swedenborg has, and I want to bring in something else here that that is a another experience that reflects that. And so this is one connected to me personally as a person. Uh, so when I was younger, I had a sister that died, and actually my aunt went through this, she, she had begun meditating and, and uh, w- you know, was shaken up, obviously, by the death of her niece, and went into meditation one day and had this connection with her. And then from there, reported having these experiences of seeing her in the afterlife and seeing throughout the years different things she was doing. And one of these descriptions of an activity is very similar to, it's, it's not the same thing Swedenborg describes, but it's with a different story from the Word, and, but a similar kind of thing happening. So I'll let her describe what that was like. When I came upon Annika, and she seemed to be dressed in shepherd's clothing, and she was excited, and she went over to, it was twilight, and she went over to a campfire, and she met with some other 
children who were dressed the same way. And then I became aware of, okay, just where are we? And I could hear little um, jingling bells, little jingling bells that were hanging around their necks and like stirring. And then the general excitement of the kids and something was going on, I didn't know what, but they were really excited. And then I began hearing, it's, it's gonna happen, it's, it's coming, it's coming. And then um, the skies just like lit up with all these angels. And um, the kids were really excited. It was, there was no fear involved, just, just like joy and excitement. And um, it was the heavenly host. And I was like, oh, I was cluing into the fact that, oh, this is like the kids having an experience, like they're the shepherds in the nativity story. So, um, so they were all looking up and the angels were singing something that related the idea, God is one. Got up and um, they you know, took the sheep in along with them. And so it was this great mil milieu of sheep and bleeding and little jingly bells and kids' voices and laughter and stuff. And they began a little journey where they went down um, into valleys and up into hills and made their way to this city. And there was a star and they were following the little star, bringing the kids along. And then they came to the outskirts of what only could be Bethlehem. And there was a manger and um, the kids were allowed to go in, like in, in twos and threes and so on, sift into, um, the, to see this holy scene with um, very intimate with Mary and Joseph and you could smell the, the smell of the hay and you were aware of like the cattle and such moving a little bit and and um, so that was really cool and then um, it seemed like from there she was just sort of automatically transported to her bedroom her bed when she was about to go to bed and her angel mom and dad asked her, so what did you learn? So it's always this learning. Everything is there, it's fun, but you're learning because you've got to learn to grow. So like in all these accounts, learning plays this central role. Okay, so this is what she learned from that experience. That um, the Lord's truth, the star means that the Lord's truth is shining in heaven and on earth. So that was the big, that was a way they had this wonderful experience. And I, in various meditations with her and connections with her, I have seen her um, creating things in an art center and interacting with nature and animals, and tree climbing and fruit gathering, a lot of dances, dances that represent things. And that's something that she has a love for, um, singing and watching entertaining plays that they get a lot of meaning out of and uh, puppet shows and and also i've seen them interacting with babies and like trying that on and then um, also comforting people on earth um, and uh, reading from the word and um, and getting a deeper meaning from it when they read it um, having it almost intuitively enter them, and also intend, attending events like weddings and things like that. So playing that to give you guys a sense of, this is another account of what it's like. And it was cool for me getting to hear from her, you know, this is, this is what 
she's up to. This is what she's doing. So that was, you know, this, this part of my interest in the whole thing. Uh, and Swedenborg goes on to describe more about this whole learning, growing thing, and that children maintain their unique identity. It's not that they just become an angelic, open vessel. Secrets of Heaven 2292. Children do not come into an angelic state directly after death. No, they are gradually introduced into that state by learning about goodness and truth, and their progress follows the heavenly plan precisely. The smallest possible facets of their character are perceived with exquisite sensitivity there, and each and every stirring of their inclination is used in leading them to accept the truth that comes of goodness and the goodness that grows out of truth. So really specialized education programs just for the kind of mind that they have. This process takes place under the Lord's unfailingly watchful eye. Above all, they are constantly being trained to see and then acknowledge the Lord as their only Father and to be aware that they receive life from Him. If life exists, whether it is truly human life or angelic life, it results from a person's intelligent understanding of truth and a wise embrace of goodness, which comes only from the Lord. So they are, there's a pri- they know what the priorities are. These are the truths you got to learn to have the happiest, most full, most free existence possible. We're going to get you majoring in that right here through, as I said, a myriad of different ways. But they are taught to have their own independence. They're not force-fed things. They're even taught how to say no to people. The Secrets of Heaven 2294, he describes that. <clears throat> Very often, organized groups of children who are still entirely childlike have come to me. The sound they made was a gentle chaos. They had not learned to act as a single body yet, as they would later on after growing up. So they're like kids, they're running around yelling and screaming. What has surprised me is that the spirits present with me could not help trying to direct the children's thoughts and words. The desire to do so is innate in spirits, but I noticed that every time they tried, the youngsters would balk, not wanting to think or talk that way. Quite often I have sensed this negative, stubborn reaction combined with a kind of indignation. When the children were given any chance to speak, all they said was, No! There's kids that love saying, I have learned that this is how little children are tested in the other world. The goal is to introduce and accustom them not only to resisting falsity and evil, but also to thinking, speaking, and acting for themselves. In this way they learn not to let anyone but the Lord lead them. When children are not in that state, but in a deeper angelic environment, spirits cannot bother them in any way, even if the children are surrounded by the spirits. So, it's not like there's, the children are always being bothered by people and always having to push back, but there are instances where they are led to do that. Just like here, there's this thing built into kids and built into adolescents that we're going to be independent. We're not going to, just because you say so, I'm not necessarily going to believe you. I'm going to strike out on my own. And that's encouraged in heaven. Even though everybody there is on this really good path, you got to be yourself. We're going to give you a chance to push away. You know, it's between you and God. Don't let anybody else tell you what you got to do. And so they, they protect that there because that's the essence of, it's part of the essence of human life. All right, <clears throat> so at, by this point, it's looking so good for these children that you start to wonder, did we get a bad deal being left on this planet? We're going to explore that now in section four. I feel like in any conversation about children in the afterlife, there's sort of a pendulum that at the beginning is the injustice, how could any child be let die, and 
and are they okay? They they were so young. Then if if it's believed that things are really good, like we've been showing in this show, then it becomes like, well, why don't all of us go like that? And how is it fair that we're here uh, and they're there? What, what did they get a better deal than we did? Um, so that's what we're going to try to to sort out in this. We're going to begin by talking about how innocence is something that actually needs to be developed. Uh, And this has gone into By Swedenborg in Heaven and Hell 341. Innocence is the vessel of everything heavenly, and therefore, children's innocence is a matrix for all the affections for what is good and true. We explained there that innocence is wanting to be led by the Lord and not by oneself, so that the extent to which we are in innocence determines the extent to which we are freed from preoccupations with our self-image. To the extent that we are freed from this self-image, we gain an identity given by the Lord. Children's innocence, though, is not real innocence, because it still lacks wisdom. Real innocence is wisdom because to the extent that we are wise, we want to be led by the Lord. Or what amounts to the same thing, to the extent that we love being led by the Lord, we are wise. So children are brought through from the outward innocence that characterizes them at first, which is called the innocence of infancy, to the inner innocence that is the innocence of wisdom. This latter innocence is the goal of their whole process of instruction. Consequently, when they arrive at the innocence of wisdom, the innocence of infancy that had served them as a matrix in the interim is united to them. The actual innocent people who are in the inmost heaven look from a distance to the eyes of other angels simply like children. In short, the wiser angels are, the more innocent they are, and the more innocent they are, the more they look like children. This is why infancy in the word means innocence. That's pretty common, the idea of, in in Swedenborg, when you're approaching people and you're still a ways off, they look different. They appear in a way that gives you an insight into what they're like. There, if you approach these these inmost angels, they look like children from afar. You come up, they look like adults, but you can see some of their their innocence of wisdom. And this innocence of wisdom is something that we're all supposed to be working towards, as well as children in the afterlife, children here. It's not marked by, we lack life experience, so we have innocence. It's that we have chosen this willingness to go with with love, with the divine design, uh, even though we've had opportunities in other areas. And so uh, children have to come to that too. Children who die and go to heaven, they, they have to make that journey. The innocence they have then isn't complete. And actually, children have, just like the rest of us, a dark side. You know, you, you can see this, and, and kids will hit each other, take their toys, but but kids who are growing up in heaven, they still have inclinations to do evil things like we do have here, and as part of their training, they have to, at some point, learn that that's true so that they don't feel like, well, I'm so great because I've never done anything bad, and this is Swedenborg describing that a little bit. This is from Heaven and Hell 342. I have talked with angels about children, wondering whether they were free from evils because they did not have any realized evil in the way adults do. I was told, though, that they are equally involved in evil, even to the point that they too are nothing but evil. However, they, like all angels, are withheld from their evils by the Lord and kept focused on what is good to the point that it seems to them as though they were focused on what is good of their own accord. So to prevent children from having a false notion about themselves after they have grown up in heaven, 
a belief that the good that surrounds them is from them and not from the Lord, they are let back into their hereditary evils from time to time and left in them, until they know and recognize and believe the way things really are. There was one individual who had died in infancy and grown up in heaven who had this kind of opinion. He was the son of a particular king, so he was let back into his own innate life of evil. I could tell then from the aura of his life that he had a drive to lord it over others and regarded adultery of no concern whatever, evils that were part of his heredity from his parents. Once he recognized that he was like this though, he was again accepted among the angels he had been with before. In the other life, none of us suffers any punishment for inherited evil because it is not ours. We are not at fault for our hereditary nature. We suffer punishment for any actualized evil that is ours, that is, for whatever hereditary evil we have claimed as our own by acting it out in our lives. The reason grown-up children are let back into the state of their hereditary evil is not to punish them. It is to make sure they know that on their own they are nothing but evil and that they are born from hell into heaven by the Lord's mercy that they are in heaven not because they deserve it, but as a gift from the Lord. This prevents them from inflating themselves over others because of the good that attends them, for this is in opposition to the blessing of mutual love, just as it is against the truth of faith. So, it's not as children that they get then they get shown the depth of the evil tendencies that they have. It's as adults, for the reason that was described with that guy who was born, uh, grew up in heaven, was the son of a king. Uh, he thought, hey, I'm in case, or he was on the path where he could have been thinking, I'm so much better than everyone else. Look at me. I, I never do anything bad. But he was shown, you would be just like other people if you weren't in heaven. And this whole we have evil in us and it's just God bringing us up. That's a whole other discussion because it's essential to Swedenborg's worldview that we don't take credit and possession of goodness, that we don't say, I am better than this person, that we say, God is good. God is the one that is bringing us all up into heaven. That's essential. And so children have to learn that at whatever is the appropriate time. So everybody, as I mentioned, are there's still individuals there, and they learn in their individual ways. This is Secrets of Heaven 2300. He says, Children in heaven have different bents of mind and different personalities, which they receive by inheritance from their parents and cumulatively from their grandparents and great-grandparents. This is the concept of heredity that affects us all, that you have sort of a, a spiritual heredity as well as a physical one. Parents' actual deeds, entrenched by habit, become part of their nature and are passed on to their children. Differences of inclination in the children are the result. To put it broadly, children have either a heavenly or a spiritual character. The heavenly ones are clearly distinguished from the spiritual ones. And this is the, the good and truth, the love and wisdom, the two great parts of heaven. Both are needed, but there's, yeah, and the, the, so different kids fit into different uh, categories. The former, so this is the, uh, the uh, heavenly, the former think, speak, and act very gently so that hardly anything appears that is not an effect of their affectionate love for the Lord and for other children. The latter, the spiritual, on the other hand, do not proceed as gently. 
Instead, a quality reminiscent of beating wings reveals itself in all that they do. Their character also manifests itself in an annoyance they display, and in other marks as well. So every single child's personality differs from that of every other child, and the upbringing of each is adapted to that child's personality. So you have one that's just sort of like more, a little more timid, real lovey-dovey, and the other one is just a little more edgy, like, hey, I gotta go do this, go over here. Both are good, and both are needed. You need both kinds of people to get things done, and uh, both, uh, it's the joining of the two that, that makes heaven. We also, there's also different capabilities, and this gets a little bit into why are some people forced to grow up here on earth and why do some go into heaven? Well, there ultimately there is a different function that each of us can provide, and you could. Everyone is being guided by divine providence to be able to do a particular thing to help the human race in a way that nobody else can. And for some, certain life experiences lend itself to that, and for others, others do. So there are different sorts of different sorts of people are made in the crucible of these different experiences. And this plays out also, you get a certain kind of person when you're raised in heaven, you have certain attributes. In Heaven and Hell 345, Swedenborg says, we also need to describe the difference between people who died as children and people who die as adults. People who die as adults have a plane acquired from the earthly material world, and they take it with them. This plane is their memory and its natural physical sensitivity. This stays fixed and then goes dormant, but it still serves their thought after death as an outmost plane because their thinking flows into it. This is why the nature of this plane and the way their rational activity answers to its contents determines the nature of the individual after death. People who have died in childhood have been raised in heaven, though, do not have this kind of plane. And he goes on to say, they have a natural spiritual plane because they bring with them nothing from the material world or their earthly bodies. This means that they cannot be engrossed in such crude affections and consequent thoughts. They actually derive everything from heaven. However, the state of people who have grown up on earth can become just as perfect as the state of children who has grown up in heaven if they move away from the physical and earthly loves, love for themselves and love for the world, and accept spiritual loves in their stead. And see our episode last week on the different kinds of love and what those terms mean. So we can both become just as perfect, just as good, but in different ways. You take something with you from this world that you don't have, and vice versa. Both growing experiences make us capable of doing things for the human race that the other couldn't. For example, here are some things that Swedenborg said says children who have died and just gone right to heaven can do. They can influence us with their uncorrupted openness to the truth. They can share a powerful sphere of innocence with others. They can help build up heaven. They can deflect evil. They can help guide children on earth. And he also says uh, that sometimes the Lord sends children in the other life to children on earth, although earthly children are totally unaware of it. The other world's children take great pleasure in the children of earth. And that's what I was saying before, imaginary friends, so that, that these heavenly children can be with children on earth. And so these are, those are some things you can do there that you can't do if you're growing up on earth. But there will be the reverse as well. You know, the, the kinds of hard experiences we go through here, having to deal with the grind and time and space, doesn't that set us up for all kinds of things. You just think about uh, in, in like substance abuse counseling, if you have someone who's been through it, how much more effective are they? How much more effective is someone who grew up in a neighborhood at talking to the people from the neighborhood and affecting change? So we have things that we can do here too as well. And uh, Marilyn Hughes 
talked a little bit more about the kinds of roles that children can play uh, in the afterlife and what they can do. So we're going to hear from her. Another thing that I've seen is children who are working with with other teachers, and I've seen specifically some of them working with St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was the first American-born Catholic saint, but she was a teacher of children. And she has a schoolhouse in heaven where she teaches children who will eventually then teach other children who have crossed over and who have died. Um, uh, Because there's always this constant thing in the afterlife of utilizing the experiences that we all have um, from this life and from the next to help one another. So they're gonna help other children who need to be taught from a young age who cross over early. Uh, there's, you know, there's an infinity of, of things that children can be taught to do. As infinite as, as, infinite as God is, that's how infinite the number of potential tasks or services or ministries our children can be taught in heaven to provide in heaven and on earth because they you know they do become angels just like people do and so they they end up working with both people on earth and people in the heavens and of course there are also other aspects of this where some some are called even for purposes that are going to deal with uh, the the dark side and so ironically some of our children are called that way and they're going to be trained that way to help with some of the more hellish realms that Emanuel Swedenborg talks about um, it has to do with you know guarding the guarding the boundaries of the realms because as Emanuel Swedenborg stated so well we go where we're compatible um, but that which is incompatible to the higher heavens and the, even the lower heavens, sometimes will try to violate those boundaries. So um, one of the jobs that is that is trained uh, is to know how to energetically guard those boundaries. So you think about, yeah, dealing with hell and how could somebody who had never really, who had grown up in heaven, and never really had to deal with as much hell in themselves and hell from other people. They would have one way of contributing, but then us who have have experienced it so much of it on this planet, we would have our own way to contribute. So if you can take that away from this section, yeah, there's a great, great um, life that the children get to have in heaven. But in the end, it's not about who who gets an easier time. It's about how can we all find out a way to contribute best to the human race. So there's divine providence, and it's saying, this person's going to go here. They've got to go here, unfortunately. This person's got to stay here. In the end, it's all going to work out for the best. So that's the message. And there is a way that we can be connected to them, even if they're still in the afterlife, and we're going to look at that in part five. Will they know us? I said we would get back to that. That will children who died young know who we are, even even ones who died in infancy? Will they forget us? Will they recognize us, even if we've changed and these changed and they've changed? Heaven and Hell 949. Swedenborg describes it. As soon as we arrive 
in the other life, we are all recognized by our friends and relatives and by people we have known in one way or another. And you heard Marilyn saying that your relatives can be there to greet you. Um, Also, this is a cool story, Secrets of Heaven 2304. I once talked to a man who had died as a little child and now looked like a full adult. He talked to his brother, who had died as an adult. So even though he's a little child, they made that connection. And the former's words held such a deep sense of mutual brotherly love that the latter absolutely could not keep from crying, saying it seemed exactly as love itself were speaking. So the brother who had died young, the way that he talked just overwhelmed this other brother who died. And think about, you sort of hear him describe that academically, but if, if you had known a, a, you know, a little brother who had, had died very young, to get to meet them in the other life, and not only that, but to have such love come out of them that it moved you to tears. That's a powerful experience. So I thought that that was cool. And I want to bring in, because um, what is lost? Are relationships lost? You know, if you if somebody dies young, yeah, okay, maybe we'll see them again, but do we, we miss out on, you know, if, for example, you had a child die would you not get to be their parent anymore? Would you miss that time in those years? So I actually had my parent, my dad, uh, share a story, because I said my sister died when we were young, and he one time had a very vivid dream, and it had to do with, uh, and in the end, the, the maintenance of this, this relationship of, of parent to child. So I'll let him tell the story. So my oldest daughter died when uh, she was eight, and that was way back in 1991. She died in a car accident. I was still uh, very much dealing with the grief. I went to a um, technical seminar and listened to uh, papers all day. And um, whenever I was alone during that time period, I would, I would cry remembering, uh, you know, going through what I was going through. Uh, so at the end of the day, I was exhausted and um, went to bed. This is in Chicago up in this uh, hotel, up in the 10th story. And I fell asleep and um, had normal type of fuzzy dreams that you have. And then I um, suddenly a dream became very clear, very three-dimensional. And it was of my daughter and she was very uh, bright, had a uh, smiling face right next to mine. And um, she was uh, had her arms wrapped around my neck and her legs wrapped around my body around my waist and um, just, you know, holding tight and I could feel her arms. And um, we communicated just mind to mind. Um, and I had a bunch of questions basically for her and, and I don't rem- I didn't remember them. I just had a series of questions as I knew that's what I was doing was asking her questions. And, um, so then um, the dream ended and uh, I woke up the next day and instantly remembered the dream and I had asked her a question and she had answered it that yes she would still call me daddy that was the one question i remember i'll still call you daddy that's cool i mean sorry i'm parading my whole life story up here but but that and anyone that that's the maintenance of that relationship because that is something you could think is lost okay i'll see them again but it won't be the same and i think that she was trying to tell him no no we're, we're not losing something here so thanks dad for that innocence is a connection. That's what Swedenborg is saying, that there, there's that in- innocence is maintained, and it bonds us, um, you know, to heaven where our loved ones are. This is Secrets of Heaven 2305. <clears throat> there are some who identify innocence with childhood because the Lord said of children that they are the kind who make up heaven. 
Matthew 19, verse 14, and the people who do not become like little children cannot enter the kingdom of the heavens, Matthew 18, 3. But people who think this way do not know the word's inner meaning, so they do not know what the Lord means by childhood. Childhood means the innocence that comes of understanding and wisdom, which we looked at before. It involves acknowledgement that we receive... So this is what innocence of wisdom is. It involves the acknowledgement that we receive life from the Lord alone and that the Lord is our only Father. After all, if we are human, it is because we understand truth intelligently and embrace goodness wisely, and the capacity to do so comes only from the Lord. Innocence itself, which the word refers to as childhood, cannot possibly exist or dwell anywhere but in wisdom. In fact, the wiser we are, the more innocent we are. So the Lord, being wisdom itself, is innocence itself. You might not think of God as being innocence, but Swedenborg says, yet God is innocence, and that innocence is, as he puts it elsewhere, a willingness to be led by the Lord, and the wiser you are, the more innocent you are, because the more you realize the divine is is everything good and is the one that, that we should be following, so you want to follow in that path more and more. He talks about it also in his book, Married Love, number 396, the innocence of the Lord flows into angels of the third heaven, where all are in an innocence of wisdom, passes on through the lower heavens, but only through the innocent affections of angels there, and so descends directly and indirectly into little children. So this is where their innocence comes from. Although little children are in a state not much different from that of sculpted forms, meaning they're, they're just starting life out, still they are receptive of life from the Lord through the heavens. So that's, if you ever want to know where does childlike innocence come from. Nevertheless, if parents did not receive that influx also in their souls and in the inmost level of their minds, the innocence of their little children would fail to affect them. An equivalent and comparable element must exist in another for communication to take place and to bring about reception, affection, and so conjunction. Otherwise, it would be like a tender seed falling on flint or like a lamb thrown to a wolf. That now is the reason for the statement that innocence flowing into the souls of parents joins itself with the innocence of little children. So it's not just that children are innocent, that the parents, the people who love these children, also are tapped into this flow from heaven that gets you connected with them. And so that connection can even can even maintain when one is in the other world. And as but why, if we can have that connection, why don't we hear from kids a lot? There's a lot of good reasons for that. We did an episode of this show long ago called Why Don't Those Who've Died Communicate With Us More about a little bit of the, the barriers to inter interdimensional uh, or interworld travel. Um, and also there's you know we go into that about just the, the mechanics of it and how it's hard for, for that communication to take place but there's also uh, a reason with the kids welfare in mind and we're going to hear Marilyn Hughes talk a little bit about that so many different things that you could uh, that they can do because they are going to be doing the work of angels guardian angels um, so they're going to be working with souls. Uh, they're going to keep an eye on their families. Um, ironically, even uh, even with uh, children who were either even children who were miscarried or who were who died very very young, like as a baby, they still keep they still keep touch with their families. And um, it's it's not going to be something that's real constant. But it is definitely um, something that they are given special periods of time to glimpse into what's happening with their family. Sometimes they're allowed to, uh, you know, appear in someone's dream, or some people will have the foot of the bed experience. And sometimes they are allowed this just because 
uh, of the simple purpose that God wants people to know that these children live on and they're, they're members of your family, even if they you know, died very, very young, even if they were miscarriages. And so it's very interesting to see that and the involvement of the uh, children in the lives of their earthly family, as well as them continuing to do what they do. One of the things that happens with the children is that there is like a wall that's put up between them and the living and I think sometimes people who maybe have lost children may, you know, they, they really crave to have those experiences as we all would. I have three children of my own, but there's a wall that's put up between the children who have passed and the living. And they're only given these permissions to have a peep into what's happening at certain times. And there's a reason for it. Um, because if, if, they, if they were able to do that on a real regular basis, they would be very impeded in their progress in the next world. And because they have crossed over, their, their destiny lies there now. And so they cannot have too much involvement. And that's why sometimes people don't hear from in any way their dead children as much as their deceased children as they would like to, but it's because it's necessary for them to continue in the world that they are in. If you think about it, they, if they have to develop, you know, yeah, it can make sense as painful as it is that what's what's best for them has got to happen. But it doesn't mean that even if we're not getting, you know, overt communications as often as we like, we can still be connected to heaven through all the, go watch all the episodes we've ever done. They're basically all about how to connect to heaven. And the more that we do that, open ourselves up to love, the more that we're we're close to them. Swedenborg says that, that um, you know, you can be very close to someone spiritually, even if you don't, you can't know they're there, but, but the spirit can be very close. So that's something that we can do. But that's, you know, that's a nice thought, but really, you know, if if we love somebody, love a child, and they die, there's a lot of pain here, and there's a lot of grief and a lot of work to get through. So this last little bit of the show is about what do we do? What do we do when we're left? What do we do when we are the ones who stay here and, and we've lost someone who goes on? This is a, a note that we got from a family who had a way of dealing with the loss of their actually 18-year-old daughter. Um, so we're going to pull it up here. Uh, this is a, a letter that they wrote, and there they are. There, after our daughter Erin died of cancer in 1993 at the age of 18, our family was devastated. We all faced the grief and pain of her loss and continue to deal with it today, over 22 years later. Looking ahead to the first anniversary of her death and the first time her birthday would come, Judy suggested that we celebrate rather than be all upset. She was with us for 18 years, and we need a way to keep her with us. So on her birthday every year, we have some type of celebration, usually with a cake, including candles. Thanks to modern technology, we are usually able to join in the singing. One year, Judy and I were in northern Maine about to cross over into Canada. We got out out our cell phone and contacted our three children and sang with the speakerphones on. The anniversary of her death, August 25th, is another time we need to keep her with us. Judy suggested that we try to do something special that we had never done before as a family on that day, or as close to it as possible. We call it Family Fun Day. We think about Erin and wonder how she would be fitting in as an aunt, as a wife, as a mother, and we picture her in heaven taking care of children and being happy. Judy and I are especially happy to see that our children are always that our children always ask, what are we doing this year for Family Fun Day? 
Erin is with us in a happy way that keeps our love for her real and alive. We are not always together for Christmas, but we are on Family Fun Day. And there's a couple of things I like about that. One is, as Marilyn was saying, that, that children really can, at times, be aware of what's going on. So maybe when we're doing something that, that is thinking about them, that is directed towards them, that they, they even get to feel a little bit of it and do a little bit. So that's cool. And then this belief that they are there, they're in heaven, they're doing cool things, that creates a connection, you know, because thought brings presence spiritually. So if we think about them, picture what they're doing, even just sometimes that can create sort of a a connection. However, there it doesn't take the sting out of grief. Grief is a very real thing, regardless of whether you believe in an afterlife. Check out the description of this video. We tried to put some grief resources in there, and we also got a chance to talk to Dr. Erica Hyatt, who uh, is, has had a background in grief and counseling, um, and she had a few thoughts on, you know, what it's like to go through that and, and even go through it uh, with a belief in, in an afterlife. I think what's really important for people to understand about grief is that no two people grieve the same way. We can almost see grief as a collection of symptoms like someone having a cold. You might have physical symptoms and that's how your body behaves. So you might be more likely to get sick, you might have trouble sleeping, you might feel restless or you might even have spontaneous headaches or pain and oftentimes the body will grieve prior to one being able to express emotions because your body is almost protecting you from feeling those intense feelings. So there are physical symptoms and then there are the emotional symptoms and emotions that can come and go that can be very intense at times and sometimes we can feel even numb. Um, there's also a lot of thoughts that we might have. We might blame ourselves for a death. We might have thoughts like, well, why did this person die? Why did my child die? The order of things is that a parent goes before their child, and so this is something that people struggle with. Is it something I did? Am I a bad person? Am I next? Can I talk about this? Is grief, is, is death contagious? And then there's behavioral symptoms too, and that's isolating ourselves or throwing ourselves into certain tasks that we may not have been interested in before to distract ourselves, engaging in behaviors that we might not have before, even drinking or drugs, that can happen. But I think what I would want to express most is that there's a term called complicated grief. And I'd like to say that grief is always complicated. And so we kind of say complicated grief is a bad thing. It's like a disease or an illness. Well, no, our relationships are complex. And so we grieve in a complex way. We've just lost a piece of ourselves, of our history. When you think of siblings, They've lost a person that helped them learn about relationships and their parents and how to negotiate life. Parents might have lost uh, their hopes and dreams for the future. You know, even people that have miscarriages, their ideas of who those babies are going to become, those can really hit home when they lose that baby, that imagined child. So yeah, it's, it's complex, it's complicated. and. I think what can also be challenging is if we've had a wonderful spiritual experience where we've connected with that loved one, or we have a very fundamental belief in an afterlife or a spiritual theology that doesn't make the symptoms of grief any less painful. Sometimes it can ease the pain a little bit and with time we can find meaning in our spiritual beliefs and practices, but ultimately it hurts and it's okay to hurt. and. 
we should be acknowledging that that hurt is very, very real. And so there's things that we can do. If we talk about it, if we journal, we can create rituals that honor the person that we've lost. We can say their names. That's so important. We can examine the thoughts and beliefs that cause us to feel guilt or shame or concern about how the death happened. And we can challenge those because so often we misinterpret cues from our environments. People might say, well, I shouldn't be grieving. No one wants to see me grieve. I should be moving on. But no one might be telling you that. You know, we might just feel that people are giving us that message. So where does that message come from? And how can you allow yourself permission to mourn and to grieve? We can explore the meaning, as I said, when we can find meaning in our experiences and teach ourselves what the meaning of this pain can be individually, then that can help us cope. And I, I won't be so trite as to say everything happens for a reason. But Viktor Frankl, I will paraphrase here, the uh, concentration camp physician uh, Jew who was imprisoned and uh, was the founder of something called Logotherapy. Viktor Frankl said, he who has a why can endure anyhow. And the meaning of each individual's life is something that he or she can only find for him or herself. So the meaning I make from my grief is going to be different than the meaning you make from your grief. The people that have come into your life, the stories you tell yourself, the directions that you choose for the future, your new goals, and the ways that you honor the person that you've lost, that can bring meaning into your life. And if we can find meaning and narrate, share our meaning with others, tell our stories, sing our stories, you know, uh, write our stories, use art, dance our stories, as long as we share our stories of bereavement, that can help us cope too. So let's move away from feeling ashamed and stigmatized by the strong emotions that we feel and acknowledge that as long as you love, unfortunately, you may lose. And it's been said that the intensity of your grief is really equal to the intensity of your love for that person. She actually wrote a book that's a great resource for it's targeted specifically at dealing with sibling loss it's called grieving for the sibling that you lost you can check that out just search the title it's amazon all those places so really awesome stuff we appreciate her talking all right we're going to wrap everything up here with um it's been this episode has been about the the agony of loss and then the the joy of finding out that things are going to be okay and that, that things are actually better than you thought, and that, that love doesn't die. And this last story encapsulates all of that. And let me say, I was doing the rough cut for this, like when I was, okay, we'll keep this part, and I was, it was making me cry, because it's just like really, I don't know, something about it really got to me, the, the, the idea of loss. This is a story from a woman who had a, a child who was born and died very soon after, just had all kinds of complications from the birth, and and the story of, of how she got to, to reconnect. So, so definitely check this out. Uh, we had five children. Then when I became pregnant with my sixth child, I didn't feel a connection with the baby that I usually did with the other five. And it just felt strange. Later on, the, the death certificate said he had multiple congenital deformities. But as soon as I saw him, I felt overwhelmed with love for him, and I felt a tremendous connection, which I have still 
I still feel to this day. As soon as the nurses saw that he was having difficulty breathing, they whisked him away uh, to an incubator and I never saw him again. So I, I had heard his little cries and I had seen him blinking, so I know he had lived. And I thought to myself, I'll name him Charles. And two hours later, they came to the room and the nurse kind of whispered in my ear, Mrs. Rose, the baby's gone. And I was just devastated, completely devastated. And I turned my face to the wall and just cried for hours. Three things really bothered me deeply. One was that while I, that short time while I was holding him, I didn't kiss him to let him know that I loved him. Another thing that bothered me was I had not had any opportunity to do, do anything for him. Another thing that bothered me was the thought, the question, where is he? I knew the answer, which was he's in heaven, but somehow I just couldn't picture heaven and it left me with this feeling of not knowing where he is. We moved back to Canada and then to the U.S. and eventually moved down here to Tucson, Arizona. They have a wall in Tucson in the Children's Memorial Park where you can have your child's name carved. And this was so wonderful to me to think that at last there was something I could do for him. I could have his name carved on that wall. Some years ago, I was in a life enrichment course and we were doing a meditation. As I meditated, suddenly Charles came to me. I knew at once that it was Charles, but I wasn't at all sure that he would know who I was. So I shyly said to him, Hello, Charles. I'm your mother. And he just gave a tremendous smile and said, I know that. He had, his face was absolutely beautiful, radiantly beautiful, and he had these soft brown eyes. And I had a chance to apologize to him. I said to him, Charles, I'm so sorry I never kissed you. Before I lost you, he, he just shook his head slowly from side to side and said, I knew you loved me. This visit from Charles really changed my life. And I felt that the events had been kind of put to rest now that I had seen him and spoken to him and he had assured me that he knew that I loved him. <laughs> Man. I'm telling you, that's a powerful story for, for a lot of reasons. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with us tonight. It's been, hopefully, it's been uh, giving you something that's good. If you liked it, like it or subscribe. Please uh, help this video get out. You never know, it might be just a thing someone needs to hear at a certain point, so this will help get it out into the world of YouTube. If you want to support programming like this overall, please donate. We're a nonprofit, so we need donations to make it all work. Okay, we said that we were going to answer questions, and we are. We'll take a 20-second video break while we get them organized, and we'll be right back. Okay. If you have a clock in your house, 
You may have noticed this episode went longer than usual, but we'll still try to get a few questions in here. Uh, it's too hard. I couldn't cut anything out. It was just too many things that I felt like this needs to be in here. This needs to be in here. So my apologies. All right, let's take a look at our first question. John, YouTube. So children in heaven learn to talk, but in heaven they communicate in thought. Now it's interesting because it seems sort of like you can do both. And Swedenborg definitely describes mental telepathy, and you you heard that in a few of the experiences, but he also describes things like vowel sounds and which vowel sounds belong to which heaven. So I'm not sure you know, what is the mouth used for. So it may be that there's some kind of uh, both happens. Um, he definitely talks about a universal language, and it may be that if there is this mental talking, it's in that language, because you still would be having these word concepts. So those are my thoughts on that, man. Thanks for the question. Okay, next one. Barb, what kind of intelligence and wisdom are children in heaven fed with? Well, we had s- some examples of um, that, that all goodness comes from God. Now, wisdom is an interesting word in Swedenborg's um, lexicon because he defines it as wisdom is of life, meaning wisdom is not just a deep understanding of truth, it's a living by those. So, if you know that uh, you should wish wish well to other people, that, that, that it's a truth that, you know, love one another as I have loved you. To actually go and do that, that would be wisdom. So the, the kind of, the, that's char- the study of charity or of kindness to other people, that's the central, most important thing that you learn in heaven. That's the essential, but there's all kinds of things you can learn within that, all kinds of nuances of how and when to be kind, but there's also ways to, the, the kinds of things we learn here, how to teach people, how to do relationships, um, how to work in certain areas of the spiritual world, just like here in the physical world. You can learn sciences, you can learn how to manipulate physical matter. There's the same kind of thing, correspondences there. So it would be all those sorts of things, as well as the basic knowledge of who God is, what it is to be a human being, and and how to live, in what the divine design is, and how to live in it. So those are a few thoughts on, on what you learn there, and I'm sure it's... it's so if, if they heard that there, they wouldn't laugh at me, but they would just be like, yeah, well, it's a little more complex than that, I'm probably... But that's that's the, the rudimentary idea of what I think you learn there. So thanks for the question. Let's do another one. Antoinette, someone once told me that my son would be my angel. Is that not true? Uh, I think... So if, if you're talking about your son who's who's passed away, it certainly could be. I mean, we heard Marilyn talk in this episode about, um, you know, people who had died um, staying in touch with the family. You had Luis at the end there meeting her, her child who had died, who, who seemed to be able to talk. And uh, I don't know if you mentioned what, what how old he was, but there was that connection there. And so when Swedenborg talks about angels... He um, he just he doesn't do a lot of talking about familiar relationships. He just says everyone has angels with them. It's other experiences generally go closer into that. But you seem to see wherever people report it that there's strong family ties. Uh, you know the the bonds of love. So very much so, your son could be your angel right now. That that's what I think anyway. Um, but what do I know? Okay, let's look at the next one. This is another one from Antoinette. How are the heavenly parents chosen? It's a great question, and I can't claim to know the... Oh, hey, 
we just switched to a new question. I'll answer that one, then I'll answer this one. Um, I can't claim to know how heavenly parents are chosen. It would have to be something like the same way that communities... Don't be reading this one while I'm answering the other one. There it is. Um, it would have to be like communities are... Um, are organized in heaven by similarity of minds, you know, that people who love and think in the same way spontaneously are drawn together. So there is a gathering of everything based on what's inside, and we learned early in the show that the, the details of what kind of minds these children have are known, so I would think the parents would be chosen by, by God through wise angels who know, oh, you would be really good for this person. It also sounds like it, in that one quote it said, you know, somebody can care for as many children as they have the, the maternal instinct for, so it might be that based on availability that plays into it, but ultimately God is putting people with the best possible matches for them. Okay? Let's take a look at the next one. Now, drive-by poet, all this makes it seem as though dying as a child is a good thing. If this is so, then what is the reason there to live out one's life in this world? It's a great question. I'm not just going to say, ah, oh, because this, you shouldn't ask that. It's a question that, that you can ask because it seems like, wow, that is a good deal. What I was trying to get across in the section on different paths is that you can learn things here, you can develop here in a way that you can't in the other life. You can gain things here. But the real answer is that divine providence, why are we here and they're there? Because God from the 10,000 or 10 million foot view, sees who we are as people, sees what our eternal future can be like, sees just what we need in order to eventually come into the greatest happiness, and as such is having people in different spaces and, and sees evils that are coming up in those. This is the best way to deal with them. So from that, it's actually, it's better for us to be here, for you and me personally, and it's better for the people who are in the other, on the other side to be on the other side. That God is, you know, the way that it's done with pain and all that, that's not the ideal, but with how things are, with the world in its imperfect state, even though it's bad here, we're learning things here that, that we couldn't personally learn there. So, and also, the, for what it's worth, us being here, there's got to be some people here, because as Swedenborg describes, heaven can't function without earth, that there's a connection of minds, there's a connection via correspondences, there has to be earth. So if we're here, we can make the earth a better place. The more that we can do that, then the more we can work on this planet, do better things, people will be more happy with being left here instead of, of taking up. So that's another way to think about it, too. So I know that's not going to totally emotionally answer the question, but those are a couple of thoughts. Uh, let's do two more. William, I have heard of children with morbid schizophrenia, as in they torture tiny animal, they torture animals, etc. Are they treated differently, or are they still looked at as being innocent children? It's a good question, and I would say everybody has hereditary evil. Um, we saw in that in that video quote earlier that even kids who seem really good could be let down into their negativity. I don't know if these people, these little kids who are doing bad things, are just more in their hereditary evil and can be pulled out of that in heaven or not. I, You know, Swedenborg says all children do X, but that doesn't mean like all. It could There could be different cases. However, I would be very surprised if there were any kids who were um, not taken into heaven. And I think that if if kids are doing something like that, it, if, if there's some kind of wounding or abuse that put them there, there's healing for that 
and if it's if it's schizophrenia, you know, some kind of mental spiritual disorder, I think there's healing for that too because adults that have those disorders are healed in the next life. So I would think they would be able to start from from a clean slate. I don't think at that age you have the rationality to really make evil your own. Um, but that's just what I think. I don't know for sure. So let's do another one. Last one for tonight. <clears throat> Yokopo. Earlier it was said that innocent angels appear childlike. Is this a permanent appearance or is it just in certain circumstances? Because I thought everyone lived in the prime age. I, I think it's just a temporary appearance. And as as we were saying, it's it's only in certain circumstances. For instance, when you're approaching someone from far away or when you have your eyes open to deeper correspondences. That, and it's not just angels appearing like children. He talks about evil spirits appearing like wild beasts, but only from afar when you get up close, they look like people that, yes, in heaven you do come, you, you don't, you're not children, you are in this the prime of youth. Um, so I don't think there are any angels who are always like children. May, they may appear like that at, at times. Swedenborg does describe children in the afterlife, you don't know if they just came from heaven or what. There's probably variation. It could be that only those close to them can see them as adults. I don't know, but there's sort of both, but but it seems like from the numbers we read tonight that the appearing as children is more of a, a projection of inner qualities rather than their actual spiritual body. So there's my thoughts on that. Thank you. Great to hear your thoughts. Really glad that you guys could come out and, and, and watch the show tonight. We're going to be back next week where we're going to be talking about the Word. Swedenborg, if you've been around him, he talks about the Bible. And to some of you, that might seem like, oh, great. And to other of you, that might seem, why is he doing that? Or to those of you who like it, but why does he talk about it in that way? Why is Swedenborg so interested in the Bible? And what is it? What is the Word? Is it just a book? Is it something bigger? We're going to delve into all those questions next week. Hope you can make it. See you then.